I just want to say thanks to the, the team for the worship that they've led us in. Uh, it's a long morning for them. Um, and just thanks for the, the, the songs as well, Seb. Um, <laughs> had a bit of writer's block this week and um, I, I pulled out the song selection and looked at the words and read through the words and, and just devotionally um, I think the Holy Spirit does this. How in line with what we are going to look at today. Um, it was a real blessing to me. So thanks, thanks guys. If you have your Bibles, let's just jump in. John chapter 17. We've started a three-week journey that we are undertaking in this chapter. The high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. This is the longest recorded prayer of the Son to the Father. We have a glimpse, a special glimpse in here into inter-Trinitarian communion, a conversation between the Father and the Son. We have a, a glimpse into the soul and the heart, the mind of Jesus Christ, hours before His arrest, before the cross. We looked at the first section last week in verses 1 to 5. Christ's prayer begins with a prayer for Himself, a prayer for glory, that the Father would be glorified as He glorifies the Son through the cross. Through the cross. We were made to see this glory. Verse 3, He says, This is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That's what life is, to see Him, to know Him, to be close to Him. And so now we turn our attention to the second part of the prayer, the prayer for His disciples in verses 6 to 9. Let us hear this prayer together as we read this passage. John 17 from verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray again together. Jesus, this is what we ask today. That you would sanctify us 
in truth. Holy Spirit, take the truth of what we see in this passage. Apply it to our lives, to our hearts. And we pray that you would grow your church today. Amen. July 27th, 1917, Second Lieutenant Robert Kelly Pollan of the Royal Irish Rifles um, stood on the, the field of Flanders ready to go into battle. And knowing the risk that, that he faced, the, the toll that had already been taken in lives of the, the Great War, he called two of his friends together he had a scrap of paper and a pen, and in beautiful cursive, he, he scratched out a last will and testament. In this will, he had a simple request. He said that he wanted everything that he had, all of his possessions, to go to his father, J.M. Pollen, Esquire of Belfast in Northern Ireland. Four days later, Robert Pollen was dead. He was a casualty of the, the Battle of Passchendaele. That little scrap of paper actually still exists today. It's yellowed and, and very much older looking by now, but it's kept at the Belfast Public Records Office. There to this day, a relic of the kind of bravery that it, it takes to be able to stare death in the face and then walk bravely to meet it. John 17 is not unlike that event, not unlike that little piece of paper, that last will. Jesus Christ stood on the battlefield this night. He faced a battle that no one else has ever had to, to face. He faced something worse than any man who's ever gone into battle has ever had to face. Jesus knew what was coming for him. He knew of the, the certain death that was coming his way. And in these last moments, he has a final word with his father. And he entrusts into the hands of his father his greatest possession, his disciples. He leaves them in the hands of the father and he, he prays for them, bestowing upon them as well the saving graces that they would need to fight their own battle in the world as well. And there are three aspects of this prayer that I want to look at today. He prays first, then he speaks about what he's already given. Already given to the disciples, already given to us as well. In Revelation, how he's revealed the Father to them, to us. And then he prays for them as well. And his prayer is precious. And it's meaning for us today. It's a prayer of preservation and a prayer of sanctification. Let's look, number one, at Revelation. We touched on this last week. The people that Christ prays for in this passage, He speaks of a specific people, those who belong to the Father. We know they belong to Him from all eternity. The Father gave these people to the Son, and the Son was sent into the world to save them. All over this passage we see the electing love of God. Seven times we see the phrase in this passage as a description of His disciples, those whom you have given to Me. In verse 6 He says, Yours they were and you gave them to Me. 
That's the primary way that he actually identifies them in the passage. They are those who have been given to me. In verse 9 he says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. As you listen to the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, as we approach this prayer, we ought to be drawn in heart to the truth that when Christ came into the world, He did not come just to, 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 to make a, a general offer. He didn't come just in, in a generalized hope. Maybe some will, will see what I'm doing. Maybe some will turn. Maybe there will be some who are saved. He came to rescue His sheep. He came to reach His lost people. He came out of love for those who are His. Kevin DeYoung said this, He loves us not as an undifferentiated mass of sinners or as a generic race of fallen human beings, at least in this passage. He loves us individually as His family with a peculiar love and intimacy and disclosure and identity and Belonging. That's what we see in this passage. Eric Alexander, in a, a sermon on this passage, he, he gave a great analogy of what's going on here. It's an, an analogy you hear often in the liturgy of a, a wedding. Most weddings you've been to, you will have seen this take place. Congregation gathered together, waiting. Waiting with the bridegroom, ready for the bride to come. And as, as they're waiting, eventually the doors are thrown open and the, the bride comes in. And how does she walk down the aisle but hand in hand with the Father? In the Father's, holding the Father's arm. Alexander says this is exactly what Jesus says is happening or has happened in the eternal counsel of the Trinitarian God. The Father who loved us from before the creation of the world takes the hand of the bride of Christ, takes our hands and puts it into the hand of the Son, saying, I give you my beloved my dear own child, to be your bride and for you to be the bridegroom forever. Alexander says the church is the Father's gift to the Son. He came for us personally. He came for you and I to defeat our enemies, to rescue His own people. And so He says here in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people who, whom you gave me out of the world. This is the purpose we know for which He came in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That's why He came into the world. And in 14 verse 9 He says, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. Jesus Christ reveals who God is. He reveals the Father. As A.M. Ramsey famously said, God is Christ-like. And in Him there is not unchristlikeness at all. God is Christ-like. Christ reveals who the Father is and the mark that they belong to Him, belong to the Father, and belong to Jesus. There are, are two words there. I don't know if you picked them up. When it, when it comes to the revelation that, that is given, two words, kept and received, the mark of the disciple. Look at verses 6 to 8 again. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And a third word there, they have believed 
that you sent me. They have kept your word. Now that is a little bit jarring if you think about the context here. The fact that he has actually just said to the disciples in the upper room discourse, one of the last things he said to them was, you are all about to bail. You're going to flee into the night. You are going to desert me in my final hour. And that's true of the disciples. That's what happened. How does he, he pray here to the Father? They have kept your word then. How do we make sense of that? It's a revelation, by the way, that they don't completely comprehend, do they? They don't really know exactly what it means that He is the Messiah. But they are His. And in the deepness of their hearts, He is theirs. He belongs to them. Dear Carson said, They may not have understood yet that their Messiah had to die and rise again. They may not have grasped how he was to embrace the f- and, and fulfill in his own person Old Testament motifs of kingship and sacrifice, priest, priesthood and suffering servant, but they have come to the deep conviction that Jesus was God's messenger, that he had been sent by God, and that all he taught was God's truth. They may not have known much, but they knew this. He is truth. He is revelation from the Father. They have set their hearts on Him for life. They have embraced Him and loved Him when the whole world has despised Him and rejected Him. And they have given up all to follow Him. And we are to to emulate this same heart, the heart of of those who belong to Jesus Christ. It's the heart that says, "I, I want to be close to Him. It's a heart that is desperate to have Him. If eternal life is this, if it's knowing Him, and if the great privilege of our lives as Christians is to know Him more, to see Him more, to see His glory in increasing measure, we have to know that the way that we come to Jesus Christ is through the Word of God. This is the revelation that we have received from God, and our hearts ought to mirror the hearts of the disciples with a, a hunger that says, When we come to this book, where else would we go? Your word is life. Your word is life. I'm sure all of us, we want this book to have bearing in our lives. We want this to bear fruit, do we not? It must be received. It must be kept. In other words, we must approach it with faith. It's not just enough to know what the Bible says. It's not just enough even to know that it is truth in in general. We have to know that it is the truth that we need. That my life depends on this. On the mercies and the privileges. The revelation, the promises that are, are contained in these pages. Well, having manifested the Father's name, knowing that He goes to the cross, He actually entrusts the gift that He has received back into the hands of the Father. In verse 9 and 10, He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me. For they are Yours. All mine are Yours, and Yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. We come to this prayer firstly knowing that this is not a prayer that He prayed indiscriminately for the whole world or for everyone in general. He prayed this prayer effectively for a group of people, for His disciples. 
He prays effectively for us today. How awesome and compelling is this truth that when he speaks of them, this group of, of messy, flawed men, when he looks at us and he speaks of the church and when he prays for the church, a messy and flawed group of people, he says they are mine. They are precious to me. And even in this passage, I am glorified in them. Do you know that that's the way that he looks at the church? That's how he looks at you and me. And secondly, as we approach this prayer, we, we know that it wasn't just a once-off thing that he prayed. He lives now to intercede on our behalf. This is a truth that we must hold dear. The Puritan John Flavel said, in this prayer, then he gives us a specimen, a sample of that glorious intercessory work which he was just then going to perform for his people in heaven. Christian, it it is no small comfort that in our problems, in my failings, in my flaws, even in my my mess, the mess sometimes, Sometimes of my life, it is no small comfort that he is there right now, the great high priest, that he is looking upon my life and that he is making intercession on my behalf. I have a perfect advocate. We sang this morning, right? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So what does he pray for them now? What does he pray for us today? What is he asking right now before the the Father? Firstly, it's a prayer of preservation. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The next time I, pray, uh, I preach, we'll be looking at that, that request, keep them in my name, that they may be one specifically. He'll come back to this focus on unity. But let's look now and, and focus now on this, this idea, this request, keep them, Father. Keep them in your name. This is a prayer that they would be kept faithful to the revelation that they have received about God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus highlights in this passage why they needed prayer, why we need His intercession even today. He highlights the danger that they face and that we face. The danger is great. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. It doesn't just mean that He's in heaven and we are here on earth. It's not just about geographical location. He's saying there are things that you and I face today that are are very real, very spiritual opposition. The world in the Gospel of John is is the, the system in opposition to God, rebellious hostility towards God. That's what John means, what Jesus means here when He says world. We all were part of that, part of that world. We've been taken out of the world into His marvelous light that we may proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And yet, having been taken from darkness into light, hasn't been really taken out out of the world. So as we often say, we, 
We are not of the world, but still in the world. There is great danger in that. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Remember chapter 15, we spoke about this. We saw this. Jesus says that, that he had chosen us, chosen them out of the world, and in that passage he promises that we would face persecution even. The world rages against Christ. It raged against Christ and that continues against his followers as people who are marked by the revelation of Jesus Christ, marked by his word. We hold to it. We are shaped by it. We treasure it beyond what the world has to offer. And so because of the word of God, we say in the world, I can no longer be of the world. I cannot belong to this place. Cannot think like the world or reason like the world. My hopes are not set on the things that they set their hopes on anymore. By association to Christ, we cannot but be a, a countercultural presence wherever we are. And we face the possibility of backlash like Christ did. Because that's what happens when light shines in darkness. The light exposes the darkness. And that's the one thing that the world cannot and will not tolerate. Now Jesus does not pray that the danger would be taken away, does he? <laughs> I wish he had, had prayed that prayer. He just prays that they'd be able to stand in it, that they'd be kept faithful in it. Prays that we'd be able to walk in that danger without compromise. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We have to know, on a daily basis, we have to know that this is true, that there is an enemy that we face that given or left to ourselves is stronger, really, than we are. We know that that's true of him. He's smarter than we are. We don't have the strength in ourselves to fight him. So we are instructed to take it seriously. Take seriously the battle that we face as Christians. To pray as we were told to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The, the enemy is lurking. He was lurking this very night. And if it wasn't for the Father's protection, what would have happened to these disciples? They would have been helpless, as we would be helpless, but for the great high priest, for what he's done, and for what he prays. And so we, we take seriously the battle, but we also approach it with confidence. Approach it with confidence in Him. Jesus, by the way, has already warned Peter about what's happening behind the scenes. Remember in Luke chapter 22, He actually says, and this is scary, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. That is a scary passage, a scary verse, but he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and he even speaks with assurance, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, I've secured your future. You're going to go through a wobbly, but when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so he says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. 
he says this in case you're looking at this group of disciples this evening and you say, where's Judas? Has Christ failed? Has he failed to guard his disciples, to keep them in his care? As he failed in the apostasy of Judas, he prays this prayer and he says this so that we would look at that and, and say, no, there was no mistake. There was no mistake, not even with Judas. His role was known all along that scripture might be fulfilled. Christ has been utterly faithful in guarding his own. There's nothing that they have faced. There's nothing that they faced while he was with them, and there's nothing that we could possibly face that is a match for his power and his care in our lives. When they thought back on this night later on, when they thought back upon the, the words that Jesus Christ prayed for them on this night, imagine the, the memories that they had, the memories of what he had done and what he had, had said and what they'd seen in their Lord. They knew that he was Lord over creation, for example. They had memories of a, a stormy night, a night where wind and wave literally threatened to take their lives. In the middle of it, they're looking around at their circumstances and saying, where is he? Does he not care? Jesus is at peace, not afraid. And with a single word, he, he commands wind and wave and they obey. They see the Lord of creation. A little while after this night, they would see him again, would they not? This time scarred, hands and side, knowing that he is Lord over life itself. This is the confidence that the disciples had in their lives, a confidence that stayed with them for life, and it should be a confidence that we have as well because the voice that we see speaking here, the prayer that we have here, has that voice changed? Has it changed one bit. No. He speaks still with the same power and the same care. And so with a treasure trove of memory, Peter can say to us, to you and me today, in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Called us to be born again to a living hope to an inheritance as well that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. So I, I ask you today, amidst whatever is going on in your life, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? Do you feel buffeted? Do you feel perhaps a little bit bruised and beaten? Maybe you feel, and I've felt this, maybe you feel like it's like the enemy has free reign in your life. You don't know where victory is going to come from. You know that you have to get back up. You know that you have to fight. You know that you have to carry on, but you just don't know where that strength is going to come from. You don't know how you're going to do it. In those moments when we are, are bloodied, 
on the battlefield of life, we don't look to our own strength. We don't look to see what reserves there are left. We lift up our eyes. We look to Him. We confess our sin. Maybe that's where you need to start today. Confess your sin, but then look up. Look up, lift your eyes to Him and trust again in His care and in His provision. Trust again that there is a future that He provides, that He has secured for you. And trust that when the Son of God prays, He is not denied. He is not denied by His Father. When He prays, it is effective for you. We sang, when Satan tempts me to despair, and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. That's who he is. He will not fail and he will not let you go. It's like when I'm walking in a crowded place or walking beside a busy street with one of my children, holding on to their hand. I know that their safety is not dependent on the strength of their grip on me, but on the strength of my grip on them. That's how it is, and I walk with God. Paul, by the way, turns this prayer into a declaration of truth In 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3, he says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and He will guard you against the evil one. Let us come again and look to Him again today. And finally, number three, he prays for sanctification. There's a word in this passage that he repeats a few times and we might miss it in the English because three different English words are used actually of the same Greek um, root here. The Greek word is the word hagios, holy. We see that a few times in the passage. So he says in verse 11 in the very address, he says, Holy Father, Holy Father. Then again in verse 17, sanctify them. It's the same root. Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be consecrated or sanctified in truth the same root both times there as well jesus prays a prayer of sanctification over their lives over our lives and to understand it i think it's important that we should tie this all together see the chain for what it is why does he say holy father it's not a common address actually we don't see it at other places in the gospel of john Holy Father, he says, he's establishing a chain that sets the foundation for the way that we live our lives in the world, for how we see ourselves in the world. When we speak of the holiness of God, what do we mean? What do we mean when we say that God is holy? We're talking about his his moral purity, aren't we? That he is absolutely untainted, untaintable by sin. But we also mean that He is transcendent. That He is other. That He is separate from creation. Not bound by it. That He is awesome. It is set apart. That He is above. That's what we mean when we say, You are holy, God. And yet, He's holy Father. 
transcendent, but imminent, close. So D.A. Carson says, Christ's address preserves a view of God that combines awesome transcendence with familial intimacy. The thought here is that the holiness of the Father establishes what it means for the Son and for the followers to consecrate themselves. This is the Johannine equivalent, the equivalent in the Gospel of John of what we see in the Old Testament. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And so derivatively, when we talk about holiness, we say God is holy, but derivatively things and people can be holy as well. And what we mean is that they, like He is set apart, like He is separate, they are set apart by Him for something, for service, for His purpose. So when you want to be holy, what that means is in your heart you, you want to be who He says that you are. Go where He calls you to go. You want to love what He loves and hate what He hates. It means having looked upon the glory of God as the people of God living in the world, we say that we, we cannot but be at odds with the world. Twice in this passage He says, They are not of the world as I am not of the world. And the New Testament calls us to, to see ourselves like the faithful in Babylon. In exile, we are called strangers. That's adjectives used of us in the New Testament. Are you a stranger? Are you out of place? What does it mean to be a stranger in the world? We talk so often about being culturally relevant, don't we? And, and it's an important conversation to have. We do need, need to be relevant as a church to the people around us. So when I was in, in seminary, in college, we spoke about that, and often the conversation was centered on the idea of um, how we, we did this, you know, how we played the songs. When you preach, preach in, in jeans and all stars. You'll be culturally relevant. And that's not an unimportant conversation to have, but I think it misses the point a little bit. What does it mean to be culturally relevant? Ask Daniel. Ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they'll tell you. The king says, you can't pray anymore. You can't pray to your God. You have to pray to me alone. What does Daniel do? He doesn't do what I might have thought to do. You know, God, I'm sure God will be okay if I pray in my heart for a little while, just for the next couple of weeks. I'll, I'll hang low, lay low. No, he throws open his bedroom windows and he prays, prays as loud as ever. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the king erects this 90-foot statue and says, you must all bow down and worship it. They don't say, well, let me just you know, tie my shoelaces a little bit here. God knows my heart. No, they were culturally relevant. They shaped even kings in the way that they stood for a greater kingdom and a greater king. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. That's what it means to be culturally relevant. In our difference, we attract the world. On the other hand, we know that that this, this calling to be strangers doesn't mean that we live in isolation, right? 
That's not what holiness is. We don't confuse holiness with complete disengagement from the world. Sanctification is not being kept hidden, but it's being kept for, set apart for, special engagement. In verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so we are called, Kent Hughes says, not to isolation, not to assimilation, but to mission. To mission. Are you a missionary? Are you a child of God? The purpose of sanctification is for mission. And a holiness that is completely disengaged from the world actually, according to this passage, is not a holiness at all. It should be the goal of our, our growth that we would be equipped, whatever way possible, to follow Jesus into the world, to be led by Him as sent ones as He was sent. David Platt, I, I like this quote, he said, Our mission is not to disinfect Christians and put them on a shelf, but to disciple them and put them into service. Finally, how does this take place? What is the golden thread throughout this entire prayer? What is the instrument that God uses for our sanctification? It's truth. The truth. R.C. Sproul says of this passage, In the agony of his intercession, Jesus prays to the Father that they may be people of the truth. Verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Why do we make a, such a big deal of, of truth in this church? Why do we literally have on our wall where truth matters? It's because we know that that is the instrument that God uses for our sanctification. Without truth, we cannot be holy. We cannot be set apart to do the, for the purpose for which we are, have been called. It's why we make such a big deal of, of expository preaching. If you're wondering why it's, it's November and we're still in, in John chapter 17, why we've been in John for ages, it's because we believe in this word and understanding what it means. If you ask what expository preaching is, um, I saw this week, I, I, I don't know if it's a good thing for me to share or not, <laughs> a, a recent theologian by the name of Kanye West was being um, interviewed and he was somehow talking about expository preaching. And um, he was explaining what it is. And he says, as opposed to you know, a preacher opening the Bible for a minute or two and then putting it aside and speaking for an hour, Kanye West says, expository preachers go line for line. And for me, it's like I come from entertainment. I got so much source. I don't need no source on the word. I need the word to be solid food that I can understand exactly what God was saying to me. So we've got to, we've got to live with this mindset that we come to this book. Do you come to this book with submission, firstly? In other words, are, are you laying yourself down on the anvil, ready for what it must do in your life? Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine said, Is not my word, this is God speaking, is not my word like a, a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Are you ready to be broken when you, when you come to the word of God? Or are you withholding something? Saying, no, you, you can't have every area of my life. And do you come with dependence? I need it. I need this word. 
I have a desperate hope for my children. I pray often for them in my prayers that they would be saved firstly. I pray that God would change the hearts of those little sinners. But I also pray that they would come to love this word. That they would be shaped by it. That they would see themselves as strangers in the world. I'm okay with that if they feel out of place their whole lives. I'm okay with that. That they would know I'm never quite going to fit in. I'm never quite going to be at home. But I've got joy. I've got joy as a, a sent one. Look at verse 13. These things I speak in the world that they may have their joy fulfilled. They may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's what revelation does. It's what the word must do. That we have seen something. We have seen something so glorious that it changes everything. Martin Luther said that the Christ Christianity must be a profane faith. What he meant by that was the, the literal meaning of profane is out of the temple. He's saying we have this privilege and we come together and we enjoy this. We, we sing. We see together the glory of Christ. But we, we don't keep it here, do we? If we've seen something glorious, we cannot keep it to ourselves. We take it out into the world we go with joy as sent ones to sacrifice, to lay down our lives, to pick up our cross for the joy that is set before us. Moses met with God. He came down from Sinai with, with his face shining, radiant like the sun. It was so bright they had to put a veil on his face. And Paul expands on this in the, in the book of Second Corinthians. He says, We all with unveiled faces have beheld the glory of God, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what this leads to, he says, is a ministry in which we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart in the world because we know that we are not of this world. We know that He will preserve us and He will sanctify us. So we bear witness to the glory we have received. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... We thank you that you are our great high priest and today we, we just look up to you again. Um, for hearts in, in this place, Lord, that are maybe feeling battered today. For the bruised reeds amongst us, Father, I pray that you'd help us to look up again and see Jesus Christ. See his blood shed for our sins. See the life that he gives. See the peace that we have with you. Fill us with this peace, Father. Make us uncomfortable as well with it in the world. Let us know that we are strangers here. And I pray that you would send us out with, with boldness and confidence as we cling to you this week. Amen.